Well, good morning again. Welcome to St. Paul's, especially if it's your first time or if you're joining us from your dock or your deck. We are glad you're with us online. The virgin birth is the ultimate oxymoron, the ultimate contradiction in terms. It's like jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, free love, minor crisis. The virgin birth is like a koan, like a Japanese poem. What is the sound of one hand clapping? It's a statement that frustrates logic, but holds deep meaning. It's also the ultimate sign of the totally upside down life that Jesus invites his followers to live. It completely fits with the man who said, love your enemies. The first shall be last and the last shall be first. Blessed are those that mourn. You can't love God and money. And my personal fave, don't worry. Oh, okay, Jesus. It's also one of the easiest reasons to discard the Christian faith and for it not to be taken seriously. We're continuing in our summer series looking at the Apostles' Creed that most ancient and concise summary of the Christian faith and what is the impact that it would have on our home and our work life if each line of the creed is actually true. If you're spiritually searching this morning, this is a great way to get a first-hand look at what Christianity actually claims. Last week, Ben walked us through what it means to say that Jesus is our Lord. How does that influence our financial decisions, big and small, uh, the activities I choose for my children or in my retirement? Our line from the Apostles' Creed today is this. He, Jesus, was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. What does this mean, both intellectually and then personally? And does it even matter if I believe this or not? <laughs> Leaning on our passage from Paul's letter to the Philippians, it was a, an ancient city in Greece, Philippi. Um, what, what does this line from the Apostles' Creed actually have for us this morning? Well, let's start by weeding the intellectual garden a little bit about the virgin birth. The only reason to doubt the possibility of this miracle itself would be if you have a prior commitment to what's called philosophical naturalism, right? The belief that the material world is all there is that exists, and there's no such thing as God or supernatural intervention. And this worldview assumes that science can explain everything, an approach that actually demands more than science even claims for itself. If, however, you acknowledge the existence of a God powerful enough to create all that exists, big bang and all, then there's no intellectual barrier to believing that God can intervene in the natural order that God set in motion in the first place. If God made the rules, God can bend them. If God uh, spoke a universe into being with all its countless galaxies, could the same God be unable to cause a virgin to conceive? The historical accounts of the birth of Jesus found both in the Gospel of Matthew and Luke both record that Mary was a virgin and that Jesus was conceived in an extraordinary way. 
And this was accepted as a fact by the very earliest Christians, both Jew and Greek, for whom it would have been just as an extraordinary claim as it is for us. People have known how sex works for a very long time. Some have objected to the virgin birth because they see it as a typical bit of, um, you know, pagan mythologizing, right? The legend of Mithra has a virgin birth. Alexander the Great was rumored to have had an unusual conception. Even Star Wars has an eluded virgin birth. Christianity has one big deal. They're all just fables. A popular but uh, problematic argument. Because in fact, there are no pagan myths that contain a virgin birth of a man who then had specific titles, did certain miracles, saved his people, and then rose from the dead. Any that exist, exist after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And it would have been unthinkable for a Jewish sect, which is what Christianity began as, to try and win new converts by adding pagan elements to their story. And besides, it's not helping your case because people have known how sex works for a very long time. So let's move forward on the assumption that it is true, right? In the same way that two plus two equals four. I think the question really is, what if it's true? How does that impact our lives? I might believe that Alexander the Great lived, but it's not immediately clear to me the difference that that makes in my finances or how I handle conflict. As I mentioned, Jesus being conceived by the Holy Spirit is the ultimate sign of the completely upside-down life that Jesus invites us into. A life where the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Uh, a, a world where enemies get loved. The virgin birth invites us into a world shaped by God's grace. This is why it's in the Apostles' Creed. This is why you should want it to be true, even if you harbor doubts. Skeptics welcome. Critics and curious can still make St. Paul's their home. So what do I mean by that? The virgin birth invites us into a world shaped by God's grace. At the heart of the Christian faith is the shocking message that we, one, need rescuing from the destruction that we cause ourselves and which our broken world likes to dish out. And key point here, two, we can't rescue ourselves. We need help from the outside. No such thing as a free lunch. We're used to paying for everything from gas to your morning coffee to Roger's service, and who can forget our taxes? But along comes God who says, I see your struggles. I see the mess the world's in. I'm going to give you a way back into relationship with me, with each other, and a way to heal the world. It's going to be free for you because I will bear the cost through the life, death, and resurrection of my son. This free gift of God's love, forgiveness, and hope is given to us as a grace, something we don't deserve and we couldn't earn even if we tried. This grace, it's the white hot center of the Christian faith. 
And if following Jesus is going to have any curb appeal, because loving enemies is hard, and it's nice just to spend money on yourself, if it's going to have any curb appeal, it's because of grace. Knowing that nothing we do or say could ever put us beyond God's love. Knowing that no matter how successful or happy life is right now, there is a deeper life of meaning and purpose that we can be part of. And we cannot have that gift of grace without the virgin birth. You see, Jesus being conceived, not by the will of Mary's fiancé, Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit, it shows God taking the initiative in unfolding the great rescue plan of Jesus. If Joseph had taken the initiative, right, if Joseph was Jesus' biological father, it would have been yet another example of us humans trying to devise our own rescue strategy. You know, imagine uh, Joseph and Mary on one of their evening strolls, deciding to take matters into their own hands. Oh, honey, the world's a mess. When are the Romans going to leave Israel? Let's have a child that will grow up and he can be the Messiah. That's not what happened. God reached out to young Mary. She gave her consent. And a child, miraculously conceived by the power of God, began to grow in her womb. Now, I would be overplaying my hand if I said that God could only enter the world through a virgin birth. But surely the birth of Jesus this way is a supernatural event, if it's anything. To take out the supernatural element is to diminish the divinity of Jesus. And a human woman still went through labor and childbirth. No epidural, mind you. He really became one of us. So both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus are assured by his birth taking place this way. God taking the initiative in the conception of Jesus sets the stage for this great gift of grace. God's love and mercy poured out on us, undeserving though we are. The virgin birth sets the stage for a world shaped by God's grace and for our lives to be shaped by that same grace. And it's where we come to our passage this morning from Philippians. Paul uh, was an early Christian writer and his assistant Timothy. They are writing to a group of Christians in this ancient Greek city. And it's likely that Paul is writing this letter while he's in prison, uh, possibly in Rome. And in this second chapter, he's dealing with some conflict in the local church. We don't know exactly what the conflict's about, but aren't all conflicts really the same thing? You're not the boss of me. I'm the best. No, no, no. I'm the best. Paul offers them a simple solution. Verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility regard others as better than yourselves. Paul then goes on to urge them to live a life of imitation of the God who humbled God's self to come and be one of us. Verse 8. And being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Not so fast, Paul. We're very focused on self-esteem in our culture, ensuring especially that our children have it, and that's not a bad thing. But writer C.S. Lewis summed up humility this way. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is Paul's solution to the fighting in Philippi. It's a solution that we can apply to almost any situation of conflict that you find yourself in, in your own family, uh, at work, and maybe it's conflict in your own head. The solution is to grow in imitation of the incarnation of Jesus, says Paul, to grow in humility, to think of yourself less. And the only way that you can think of yourself less is if you're already filled up. Now, our culture tells us that we don't actually need validation from other people. Uh, it only matters what you think of yourself. But it doesn't work. If everyone else thinks you're a nightmare, you cannot say to yourself, oh, it's okay, it's no big deal, I love myself. We are relational creatures. The pandemics reminded us of that inescapable fact. You cannot validate yourself, and if you keep trying, you will be on an emotional hamster wheel. And the Bible gives us a solution, that we were made for God. But if we turn away from God, then our lives are filled with this like infinite vacuum which we, of course, then attempt to fill with approval from others and money, the things that money can buy. And then we're all, always deeply insecure. We're touchy, we're irritable, thinking we are not getting what we deserve, right? And so we fight. We fight in our minds. We fight in our families. We fight at work. This is the heart that fights, that's restless in Philippi and in downtown Toronto. And what makes us fight is this inner emptiness. And if you're empty, you compulsively look at yourself. It's what leads to pride. If you're full, you're free to look at others and then to serve them. Humility is a sign of an inner fullness. Sounds plausible, but how do you get a heart that's full? A child born in a manger born of a virgin who came to humble himself on a cross. This child, literally in the flesh, embodies the grace of God, of God taking the initiative to reach out to forgive us, to love us, to give us hope and purpose without us needing to deserve it. Verse 7, Jesus emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, a slave. Jesus left behind the worship of legions of angels. He left behind the safety and security of heaven to become one of us. He didn't come to be a politician or an aristocrat. He came as a servant, simple, humble, poor. He then went to the cross. God's grace and love poured down those wooden beams. And then what happened? Verse 9 happened. Therefore, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above all names. That was a moment in history, but it was done for us this morning. What we need to do is take that moment in history and let it fill us. 
because you cannot validate yourself. You can try, it will not work. The way up is down. To be rich is to give your money away. The way to make friends is to love your enemies. To have power and influence, sacrifice for other people. The way to be happy, stop thinking about your own happiness. Help others to be happy. We should want Jesus to have been conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit because it ushers in a world shaped by the initiative, a gracious, loving, and merciful God. A God who, despite all observable evidence of what we're actually like, absolutely delights in every single one of us. A God who became small so we could become big in the eyes of God. A God who humbled himself so we could be lifted up. Jumbo shrimp, military intelligence, the virgin birth. Thanks be to God. Amen.